AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, but tell him while he wanders his starry sea, remember, remember me. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are tackling another listener request episode about economics. Yeah, if you listened to our last episode about will the robots take our jobs, you know already what we're going to tackle today. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this isn't the kind of uh, Ben Stein economics, hopefully, where we talk about... What is it Ben Stein talks about? (laughs) (laughs) Voodoo economics. Yeah, no, this is going to be some sci-fi economics. Here. So our listener George wrote in, I believe, from Facebook. No, uh, on at our email address, on email, which is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. We have email. It is the incredible future. Yeah. Fwthinking um, at howstuffworks.com. Fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. <laughs> Fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. No, 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 dot com, dot com. What did George have to say, Lauren? George said, I would suggest that you do a podcast about the economic systems of the future, i.e. Star Trek. Does anyone get paid for their work on Enterprise Voyager Deep Space Nine? Obviously, our current economic system has had changes in the past 100 years. Electronic payments, online banking and the like. Thanks for reading this, George. Thank you, George. And uh, yeah, first of all, did you guys recognize where the lyric came from? No, I didn't. No. That lyric is from the unsung, unpublished to the general public lyrics to the Star Trek theme song of the, uh, the, original, the original series. series. Yeah. yeah. 
great story about that that involves economics. I'll tell you after the podcast because it doesn't really pertain to the actual discussion here. You can't tease like that. On okay, the po- fine. That's not cool. So the uh, the theme was written by a guy named Courage. He wrote the theme and he was getting residuals for that theme whenever Star Trek was playing. Roddenberry had an agreement with Courage that said that he could write lyrics to the theme. So after the fact, Roddenberry wrote lyrics knowing that they would never, ever be sung because it meant that he got a cut of those residuals, huh. which effectively halved the amount of money that Courage was getting. From oh, them. my goodness. Wow. Yeah. All right. So. The future of the economy. <laughs> um, well, let's look at the economy of Star Trek because I'm interested in this, too. I think it's really cool. Uh, and obviously, Star Trek is a fictional system. It's mm-hmm. not like we're reporting on something that has actually happened. But I do think it gives us a very interesting framework for imagining how certain types of future economies might play out. So what does money look like on Star Trek in the Star Trek universe? Jobs, uh, economies. Cash, what does it all mean? Uh, well, Gene Roddenberry, despite his uh, apparently slightly problematic business practices. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it ethically questionable. Uh, he, he, he admittedly designed Star Trek partially as this utopia, this post-scarcity utopia where yeah. everyone has what they need. Yeah, he, uh, he, after the fact, after the, the first series started to air, began to kind of lay down some rules, but those rules were not hard and fast early on. So there are some contradictions. First of all, we have to admit that in the Star Trek universe, you have lots of different cultures. Uh, the the one that the Enterprise is from is from the United Federation of Planets, which has Earth as kind of its central member. And so uh, we often talk about there not being any money in Star Trek. What we're really referring to is that federation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not talking about the universe as a whole, because there are other societies like the Ferengi that do still use money. So this isn't just cut and dry stuff. There are actually contradictions within the Star Trek episodes themselves. So, for example, at one point, Kirk offers to pay some miners on Rigel 12 for lithium crystals, not dilithium, just plain old lithium crystals. Uh, in another episode, he claims, quote, the Federation has invested a great deal of money in our training, end quote. Uh, and another one, Spock even goes so far as to start exactly saying how much, how many Federation credits have been spent in his training. It's one of those, you know, funny little moments. Do you have any idea how much money they spent on you? Captain, well, 122,000. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of those wackity schmackity doos. Um, Scotty in Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country, claims that he's going to go and buy a boat. Uh, so that suggests he's actually going to purchase something. You need to have something to purchase things with. He's going to go buy it from the Ferengi. Maybe so. Uh, even in Star Trek The Next Generation, we have mention of money. The Federation offers 1.5 million, quote, Federation credits, end quote, for the Barzan wormhole in the episode The Price. Uh, Cisco's father on uh, Deep Space Nine, he owns a restaurant in New Orleans. So... Does he just open the doors and let people come on in and eat for free? Or are they paying for this food? Do they have to wash the dishes? There's no... Is there no robot to do that? Yeah. Well, actually, that's a good point. In Star Trek, the use of robots is criminally underrepresented, but we'll we'll get into that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Uh, but, but what's the... Okay, so you've outlined the contradictions, yeah. but what is the party line? What's the real... What do they say about okay, their economy? Well, Roddenberry was saying that there wasn't going to be any actual money with the Federation, that they had evolved beyond money. And in fact, a lot of the other references we find are along with that. So, for example, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, uh, Kirk at one point is uh, talking with a person from our present who says, don't they have money? Like, do you not have money in the 23rd century? And he's like, no, we don't. Uh, Picard mentions that money, quote, doesn't exist in the 24th century. The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives, end quote. I'm being superior to you, as only (laughs) Jean-Luc Picard can be. You should be ashamed of yourself. And then according to Paris on Voyager, uh, the economy of Star Trek took shape in the 22nd century when, quote, money went the way of the dinosaur, end quote. Fort Knox becomes a museum. So the money was killed by a combination of climate change and an asteroid impact. That seems to be what it means. I think that's what it implies. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, like I said, Fort Knox was hit by an asteroid. (laughs) Sorry. And then, and then that went, there went the gold standard for reals. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know we weren't technically on it since the 70s, but still. Uh, so the Ferengi, like I said, they do still use money. There's actually some some direct quotes where they talk about how, look, just because you gave up cash doesn't mean the rest of us did. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they value a rare liquid metal called latinum. Uh, yeah, they frequently trade in gold-pressed latinum because because uh, latinum is liquid at room temperature, right? Yeah, so, and they bind it So they have gold. to bind it with something like, for example, gold. Yeah, and that's what that's what allows it to be solid at room temperature. Uh, and conveniently, this metal can't be replicated because reasons. Because plot reasons. Yeah, there's no, like, I'm sure someone somewhere has gone to the trouble to explain why you cannot create latinum in a replicator, but it's... Maybe it's because of the quarks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> nice. That brings Sorry. up the issue of the replicator, which yeah. I think is sort of central to the way in which this economy is run. Yeah. So in Star Trek, they have replicators, mm-hmm. these machines that can produce whatever you want out of base materials on demand. They essentially convert energy into matter. Yeah. And when you have something like this, it kind of makes sense that there would be no such thing as money because what's the point if you can make anything you need basically for free? Yeah. Oh, well, except for, for specialist goods is the thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You could have, but there might be a demand for, Things that are made the old fashioned way because we're human and we value that. Right. Mm-hmm. But in large part, you're talking about the ability to create anything you ever want, uh, you know, anything physical you ever want that fits within the, the confines of the replicator. Mm-hmm. You can't like print a spaceship. Uh, in fact, there is a scarcity because there's a scarcity of spaceships. Uh, that actually happens after the Borg invasion. There's a problem that they don't have enough spaceships to mm-hmm. combat the Borg. And so it becomes clear that there is a limitation on this ability to convert energy into matter. There's also obviously an energy cost. I mean, if you're using en- energy to turn energy into matter, the energy has to come from somewhere. But we're at least led to believe that in the future, at least on Earth and most of the colonies that are near Earth, mm-hmm. there's a an overwhelming energy surplus. So... That's it's effectively a non-factor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We can probably assume that most of the manual labor kind of jobs have been automated. Yeah, this is the problem that we have where one of the weirdest things about Star Trek is you don't see a lot of robots. I mean, you've got Data, who's an android. Those doors open and close all on their own. And yeah, you got the doors. But then after that, like every time something goes wrong... They send Jordy LaForge into, into a that Jeffrey tube. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's like crawling on his elbows and <laughs> knees. And like there's always that one panel that's 400 feet down this <laughs> tiny little thing. And you're like, you don't have a robot to do that. We have robots now that can do that. And Jordy um, LaForge does it better. I guess so. I mean, <laughs> I, you, there's a lot of questions that come up from this. But <laughs> I will I would suggest that perhaps one of the issues here is, well, Joe and I talked about this too. We we mentioned that uh, this is is bad for narrative. You Obviously, know, if you mm-hmm. take the characters out of those situations, well, if we want to follow that same logic, really, like why are you having Sulu fire the weapons? Shouldn't you have an automated system that detects an incoming threat and responds immediately, automatically? Well, see, this way or, you have human intent. Well, <laughs> you take the automation out. Or, right. I mean, or, but at that point, why is he? I mean, we could ask infinite questions about this. Like, why is he pressing buttons on a panel when really Kirk should be able to just say, "Okay, glass, fire the torpedo." <laughs> Yeah. Right. Uh, or, or why is Kirk making the decision when obviously an AI could make the decision faster and with more ethical Accuracy. consideration? And well, certainly with more ethical consideration than Kirk. <laughs> I love that that you. I went, mean, that w- you went with the Google Glass because now I'm thinking like uh, engage warp drives. Like, where are we going? I'm feeling lucky. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, obviously this points out the, the fact that's true about pretty much all science fiction, which is that there are narrative requirements. In, oh, in order right, to right. create a dramatic story, you have to have some elements that might not really make sense given the uh, technological assumptions of the setting. Yeah. You just kind of have to overlook that. It's like the right. story's the not going to be interesting if there aren't human characters doing things. And the fact that we're we're making it in our present means that we're limited somewhat by our our imagination of what our personal scope. Yeah, yeah. what the user interface can be. But well, there are some other things that that kind of throw monkey wrench into this. You know, no need for money. You know, world. One of those is that people appear to own personal property. 
Uh, for example, you've got Cisco's restaurant. Right. You've got uh, Chateau Picard, where they still his family <laughs> still runs a vineyard. Yeah. So you've got land. So how did you get the land? Did you have a flag? Well, you got to have a flag. You've got to have a flag. Yeah. If yeah. You, don't, you didn't have a flag. Uh, I think this points out a potential problem with the whole idea of post scarcity, because there are some items with value that can't be replaced even by replicators, mm-hmm. as we talked about whole starships. Uh, for example, high quality real estate would be one. You might say that by becoming a spacefaring species, we could extend the uh, supply of real estate to a- an effective infinity, where if you can say terraform all these infinite number of planets out mm-hmm. there and colonize them all, but there would still be a demand for quality real estate. The patches of land that are close to the other things you want to be close to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the or, vistas or, and or the that ocean. Are scenic or the one that's right, really close to that pleasure planet. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> or, or if it's a restaurant at the street corner where people would actually walk in. Uh-huh, I mean, sure, it's no sure. good building a restaurant on the moon when there's nobody there. When there's well, nobody on the if moon, If there's right. no money being exchanged, then does it matter if anyone shows up or not? Well, it, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> Did we figure out whether money was being exchanged well, or not? Well, Roddenberry said that they had evolved beyond the need for money. But uh, there are some other economists who have different views on this. Yeah, let's look at what some some modern thinkers have said analyzing the Star Trek economy. So I read a series of three articles uh, that, that were published in, in various, in different uh, outlets, mm-hmm. but they were each in response to, like, one, one was an initial article, the next was a response to the first one, the third was a response to the earlier two. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those fascinating things where you get a bunch of people who have a lot to say on this issue. They're really well versed in both economics and Star Trek, and it becomes amazing. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. So Rick Webb and Medium wrote the first piece, and it was probably it was the longest of the three. Um, and it was all about the Federation being in a proto post scarcity economy. OK, so it's not quite post scarcity, but they're getting there. Yeah, exactly. He says that uh, the Earth is kind of poised between still being in that scarcity based economy where things like land, you know, you obviously have, especially if you're talking about land on Earth. You know, there's a limited amount of that. So there's still some things of scarcity. Spaceships are another example. Spaceships are not uh, are not unlimited. So mm-hmm. not not your average person can't just go out and get a spaceship. Yeah. But other things are not scarce at all anymore because you can make everything with no perceivable cost. So, for example, food in the Star Trek universe. Right. Or I clothing mean, or... Or know, houses or yeah, warmth. Yeah, pretty much anything yeah. else. Yeah, Anything you've ever seen being made on board the Enterprise, imagine that someone has one of those in their home and mm-hmm. they're capable of doing the same thing. So he argues that to get from a... A pre, you know, an actual scarcity-based market to a post-scarcity one will have this interim period in which some things are abundant in some places, and other things will remain scarce either all over the place or in very particular places, uh, and that's where the proto-post-scarcity comes in. So he talks about uh, episodes of Star Trek where there are planets in the Federation that are dealing with scarcity issues like famine and starvation, and I don't. I mean, I know that there have been episodes like that. It does make you wonder, all right, so why why are they in this situation? What led to this problem? Well, it, it's been portrayed from the episodes that I remember, at least, as being like either their replicators malfunctioned or there was some kind of issue uh, with the replicators or they otherwise got cut off from civilization in some right. interesting plot device There might way. be some energy a crisis, for mm-hmm. example, that whatever whatever they had been using to produce energy had failed in some fundamental way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he proposes that in this economy, uh, under normal circumstances, so like, let's say, the economy of Federation Earth, uh, everyone is essentially on a welfare benefit, and the benefits far exceed a person's needs. He, he gave an arbitrary example of it's like every single man, woman, and child is essentially gifted $10 million. And they can do pretty much anything they want. However, there are some social pressures that uh, put people to, you know, cause people to avoid conspicuous consumption so that no one goes out and buys everything that they don't need. Right. And it's kind of funny because conspicuous consumption makes a lot less sense if everybody has access to tons of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole idea of 
uh, I'm going to buy a flashy sports car so people can see it is to show off your relative value compared to other people. Right. Mm-hmm. And if everyone has that same value, then there's no point in doing that. Like if, right. if everyone has the capability of going out and, and building that exact same sports car, uh, then it has no unique value to you anymore. Uh, so the accumulation of possessions doesn't uh, actually what would cost something and the government itself would keep track of it. Uh, according to to his argument, he says that they would sort of look and see how much each person is using. And you uh, you have a an allotment, uh, a limit to how much you can use. But that limit is so high that under normal circumstances, you would never, ever deplete it. So you'll go through your entire life without ever running Needing yeah. anything. Yeah, you'll you'll you're operating at a surplus. Uh but then he suggests that workers are, quote unquote, paid by having that welfare benefit increased by a small amount. In other words, they get a little bit more than someone who doesn't do anything. Uh, he says that there's probably going to be some jobs that people still need to do. He's he's seeing a future where we're never going to have robots doing absolutely everything. There are going to be some things that humans need to do. So how do you give an incentive to someone who has access to everything they need for their entire lives to go and do this job that other people don't want to do. He says, well, you actually do pay them. You give them a little more of that huge amount. So maybe they get $10,100,000. And he says, sure, in the long run, this doesn't mean anything because they already have more than what they require. However, on a subconscious level, we humans tend to think, I want more, and that that would be enough of an incentive for people to go and get jobs, even though they would never they would never want for anything. Now, of course, this is assuming, as you said, that some menial or unpleasant jobs remain in this future. Yeah. Uh, if we're assuming this kind of thing were actually enacted in the real world, I think we should take into consideration the possibility of what we talked about in the last podcast on robots replacing us, which is that it could very well be that robots can do all of these jobs mm-hmm. and, I mean, and all, all, especially any, by this any time job period. any job you wouldn't find people wanting to do out of their own personal fulfillment uh sure sure and and it's possible that all of the hallways and floors and ceilings of the enterprise are covered in self-cleaning materials that are very advanced and or that there are an army of of Roombas that are just off screen yeah. in every <laughs> single shot yeah. uh cleaning everything but uh you know it's it's I I think that that's one of those suspensions of disbelief that we have to. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think that, you know, once you take in the robots idea and the fact that there aren't any jobs that have to be done, then that problem kind of goes away. It ends up being people do things for self-enrichment, which is the way Roddenberry pitched it, is the idea that the people make choices that are all about uh, what they find fulfilling themselves personally. And it's less it's not about what you get out of it. Uh, monetarily, but what you get out of it in personal satisfaction. Uh, well, that's what the the next piece uh, from Slate argued, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, so Slate goes, uh, that was Matthew Iglesias who wrote the piece in Slate. And he specifically referenced this earlier piece. And he said that there's at least some sort of scarcity-based uh, economy in Star Trek, uh, again, pointing at Cisco's restaurant, Picard's Family Vineyard, as examples, uh, and said that that was historical production, which would have its own kind of scarcity based value, mm-hmm. because while you could go to the replicator and print out gallons of wine to your heart's content, uh, it would not be the same as going and getting a bottle of wine that was traditionally produced. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and we've talked about that on the show before, I think, in our food replicators episodes, wherein uh, th- there are characters on Star Trek like like Riker has this little uh dinner club sort of thing on on the Enterprise to show off his Riker skills at cooking. You know, I think this actually points to something that's really interesting that that I would like to suggest is that robots and replicators might never be able to recreate those intangible things that we love most about life. Like a robot cannot create coolness. 
Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the fact, like that you see an object. You have not that seen they... my James Dean bot. <laughs> <laughs> it can't. A robot can't figure out what's cool about a handcrafted artifact that is cool. Well, no. I, and part of it also is just the the idea of someone making something for you, or yeah. you making something for someone else. Well, that's mm-hmm. part of the coolness. Yeah. Is like oh, the knowledge sure. of where it came from. This sure. this indetectable physically maybe uh-huh. but by knowing where an artifact that was handcrafted came from it has this aura of specialness oh yeah yeah well i mean it's it's why people pay millions of dollars for an actual ruby slipper that was worn by judy garland or <laughs> yeah. or, or or why people are you know th- oh yeah that's a good point or you can you can see it in in pop culture these days uh, a lot wherein people are are purchasing these these microcraft beers or uh, handmade things on Etsy rather than buying something that's been mass produced. Because, you know, if if you it's this conception that if you have the money to do it, knowing that a human hand crafted this thing, imbues it with some kind of property of awesome. It's a kind of lingering magical thinking that we might not ever be able to get rid of. To shake, yeah. Now, Iglesias says that he envisions this as being sort of a gift economy as opposed to a welfare uh, economy that that was proposed by Webb. OK, explain mm-hmm. the difference there. So he's saying this as, uh, you know, everything else is provided for you. It's it's because of the replicators and the energy surplus. You're talking um, about like basic uh, needs like food and water yeah. and shelter. And, and then stuff. these these other sort of handcrafted items or whatever would essentially be freely given away. So if you were to eat at Cisco's restaurant, it would not cost you anything because the purpose of the restaurant is to bring joy to others to have the uh, the joy of making food and serving it to people mm-hmm. as opposed to this is how I make my living and that there might be some bartering going on depending upon who you are like you might be oh I got you this bottle of wine I really like that chair you carved that kind mm-hmm. of thing uh, but that it would largely just be gift economy in that you give the things you make away because the pleasure is in the making and the giving and not it's not motivated by a need for for resources. Hmm. And that's that's a that's almost unimaginable. Yeah. It's, it's it's so it's so far out from the way that our world works right now, but I think it's a it's a really terrific and interesting concept. It is easily imagined by me, but only because I've done a lot of theater work in Georgia where you don't necessarily <laughs> have to get paid. You're not necessarily going to get paid. This is a commentary on <laughs> on, on the arts in Georgia. No, uh, but at any rate, the, maybe the people who are coming to the play aren't expecting to receive value. <laughs> oh, well, I'm just kidding. They get I'm it, just they kidding. Get it despite the fact they don't expect it. Uh, so now in both of these cases with both Webb and Iglesias, they have to acknowledge the fact that there is this thing called Federation credits. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that, that becomes problematic because you say, well, there's no money, but they mention Federation credits. Well, Webb sees the Federation credit as being a private currency, kind of like Bitcoin. So it's not something that's government backed. And it was really, in his mind, used to help uh, facilitate really complex transactions that would not be easily managed through barter, those kind of systems. I mean, that's really why we've got currency in the first place is that, you know, I might grow chickens and and Joe, you might grow grapes and Lauren has uh, a bunch of cows and I want some milk, but Lauren doesn't have need of chickens, but she would like some grapes. You'd like some chicken. And then it starts getting this complicated mess. Whereas if we all just agree, hey, this piece of paper represents this amount of value for which you can get all of these different things. Then we're back to money. Yeah. So (laughs) credits he thinks of as being used as for these complex transactions, not day-to-day stuff. So he thinks you could still get away with the no money mm-hmm. uh, definition that Roddenberry set up. He also thought of it, well, it could be used for uh, for trade between the Federation and other societies. Right, right. Like you wouldn't necessarily use this to buy something on Earth. You would use it when you are dealing with some other race like the Romulans. Uh, right, right. Or, or like on Deep Space Nine when they had a bunch of different cultures interacting. And right. so you had to the, – the members of the Federation crew there had to pay – Quark and Federation credits for whatever right. it was Which that they wanted. Quark would sometimes accept and sometimes he didn't want to accept Federation credits. He was so flighty. Uh, well, you know, you know, Ferengis. I do. I do. You know, several of I'm them. I'm related to a few. Um, 
but yeah, now Iglesias sees credits as being a means of regulating government provided scarce products and services. Because like I said, not everyone has infinite access to everything. So if you needed to take a trip from Earth to some distant star system, you probably don't have your own starship. So you need to have a way of being able to negotiate that because there's a limited number of, there's a limited number of starships. Each starship has a limited amount of space on it. So that is a scarcity issue. And of course, there's still real estate like we talked about earlier. Exactly. So this would probably be the means of regulating that kind of stuff. And so it's not so much purchasing power as much as it is a limit on how much stuff you can demand from the Federation before you run out of demand. So in a way, it's it's kind of restating what Webb had said earlier, this idea that you get a certain allotment of credits that you can use uh, and you can't put so hard a demand that it would uh, exceed your credit limit. So in other words, if I wanted to, you know, in in this, if it was truly a post-scarcity economy, there's no scarcity whatsoever, I could say, I want a hundred spaceships. And uh, that would be a possibility. But that's clearly not going on in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, then you have Joshua Gans over at Digitopoly, uh, and Gans points out that it's difficult to measure a thing's worth once that thing becomes freely available using the standards that we use today. We yeah. often assign a value by how much it costs. Right. Right. Which is not necessarily a good representation of an object's actual value. Uh, an object might be more valuable than what you paid for it, depending upon your need. Or it may be less valuable, but you're like, well... <laughs> either this or nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting, but but it's still, if it becomes freely available, how do you say it's worth something? Uh, yeah. You know, there, and I've seen a lot of philosophical discussions about this particular issue that are really interesting. But uh, uh, his conclusion was that the Star Trek economy is, quote, a well-defined general equilibrium production exchange economy with a large government presence, end quote. Not exactly sure what difference that makes from the previous ones, <laughs> but he seemed really emphatic about it. <laughs> okay, well, are there any other interesting science fiction economic systems? I was trying to think of others, and I couldn't really that weren't dystopian. Uh, Star Wars is not truly dystopian. Star Wars is incredibly complicated. They have the Trade Federation, whatever the heck that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've seen those movies. If somebody wants to try to explain <laughs> it to me, I'll yeah. walk away. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll run away. Well, well, there's there's the whole problem in Star Wars where it's not quite a dystopia, but I'd say that it's more or less equivalent to our current modern economy in, in which we've got uh, you know, various corrupt governmental presences in, galactic in, in the galactic empire yeah. and, and various people operating at various levels of, uh, honesty and legality throughout sure. the system. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Star Wars, essentially you've got your, your local currencies, mm-hmm. your planetary currencies, your mm-hmm. system currencies, your galactic currencies. Uh, you've got, uh, smugglers who pick up the slack that's left when the empire says, Certain things are are permissible and certain things are mm-hmm. forbidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it seems to be imperfect but workable. Yeah. Now, granted, we can also say that this isn't a future economic uh, model. It's a past economic because it happened a long, long time ago. Yeah. And yeah, the, the other ones that I can think of that aren't quite dystopian are also along the same lines. Stuff like in, in Farscape or Firefly, you know, things where there do seem to be like interplanetary governmental systems that yeah. are that are at work. But, you know, again, for plot reasons where it becomes interesting in most of these uh, stories is that there is a need for some kind of smuggler, or some kind of black market or yeah. something outside of, yeah. of society's norm. Yeah, I think we see a lot of where it's just basically some kind of regulated capitalism, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I'm wondering if there are any good past or present analogies to the Star Trek system. Obviously, I mean, there's no such thing as a replicator. But right. is there is there anything we could look to in history and say, well, here's this case where they tried to create something like Star Trek? Uh, again, depends upon whom you ask. Rick Webb argues that comparing Star Trek systems to earlier systems, like our earlier economic systems, is the wrong way to go, and that we're more or less heading in that direction already. So he's he's arguing for a new economic model that is not directly analogous to something that we've already seen. So he argues that his version, this this proto-post-scarcity economy, 
is not akin to communism or socialism. Uh, maybe it's closer to socialist capitalism. So sort of the systems that you find in Europe where mm -hmm. it's still a scarcity based market in Europe, but you also have a social uh, safety net that's mm -hmm. uh, that underlies that. Right. And that this would kind of be that crank to 11. Right. There's free enterprise, but there's just uh, plenty of government redistribution. Yeah. So he would argue that that is the closest. The, the models that we see in Europe would be uh, akin to what we see in Star Trek. There is a proposal out in Switzerland uh, in which every adult citizen would be given uh, 2,500 Swiss francs. That's some 2,800 American dollars every month. Everyone, uh, whether they're old or young or healthy or sick or uh, already rich or poor, whether they have a job or not, just for existing, for, for being a citizen in Switzerland, uh, period. Wow. And this this proposal was accepted by the government for an eventual vote after a petition of, I believe, 126,000 signatures was collected that, that asked for, for consideration of the idea. And this kind of thing has been, in fact, considered and, and implemented in other places, never quite to the scale. Like, for example, once um, Namibia, instead of there was an experiment in which instead of distributing various aid worker supplies to a community, they handed out a flat sum to everyone. And the community basically pooled about half of their resources and, and built what they thought they needed most, which was a post office, which was something that the aid workers had never considered before. That's kind huh. of incredible. So so it was a, a pretty rad thing. But but again, on a, on a much smaller and experimental scale and. The idea in, in Switzerland and with this experiment in Namibia was that, you know, giving, giving a kind of base pay to people will help remove uh, clunky and potentially expensive government aid programs mm. from, from these places. But it, it removes a lot of the complaint that you would have saying that, that any given governmental system is, un, is, is favoring one portion of the population over every yeah. other one. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about, uh, the, the clunkiness of it. I mean, I think even if someone takes a, uh, you know, a very liberal political philosophy, typically you would still grant that, yeah, well, sure, lots of government organizations, uh, tend over time to become kind of bloated and like they can, they can become inefficient. Uh, sure. And, and there can be lots of problems in distributing more specific kinds of aid in that you need to figure out who deserves it or doesn't deserve it. Right. And uh, all of those were in air quotes if you couldn't hear them. Right. At home. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's problematic and it's something it, it gives, it gives our lovely political system something to argue about at length, which can again, uh, lead to, complication in getting that money to the people that need to receive it. Right. Yes. Um, you know, experts say that this proposal that's out in Switzerland is pretty unlikely to be accepted. Um, and there's not even a date out for a vote. Uh, this thing has been floating around for about a year and, mm -hmm. and they haven't even put it on the docket yet. So, so it's not a high priority item. It's probably never going to happen. Um, but I think it's, it's, cool that that's one of the systems that people are, are talking about as a way to fix uh, the, the economic problems that we're having. Well, you said probably never going to happen, but I'm wondering, could we ever expect to instantiate a system like the Star Trek economy in the future? And what would really be required? Hmm. Well, if we're because sorry, no, just sure, one sure. thing is, Lauren, you and I, at least, I think one time when Jonathan wasn't here, we talked about replicators mm -hmm. and we talked about how yeah, molecular assemblers, replicators. I don't know if that's going to happen. It's real technologically unlikely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you you can talk about smaller and smaller uh, programmable matter, but taking individual atoms or molecules and building stuff out of them, that that to seems scale. unlikely to mm -hmm. me. Yeah, especially to scale. You could do it on like a laboratory setting where you're doing, look, we, uh, we assembled these five molecules into this shape. Like, well, that's, that's fantastic. Where's my slushy? Yeah. You know, uh, of course anything's possible. I mean, we can never really predict. Sometimes, and, sometimes and, yeah. technology outpaces our predictions, but it, it seems like a really tough road to try to create Star Trek style replicators. I don't, I don't think replicators are necessary for us to arrive at the same kind of economic status as Star Trek. I think post scarcity does not 
require replicators for it to happen. Right. Uh, there are other routes that might lead us to post-scarcity. In fact, we there's some who argue that we are already in a post-scarcity world, at least for some items like food. And you might say, well, how can you say that with huge numbers of people starving? And the fact is that, you know, we have we have enough food to feed everyone. It's just that it's not equally distributed. Exactly. Yeah. And so it would take effort and and energy and willpower to make that kind of distribution. It would also be very uh counterintuitive to certain economic systems like capitalism. Right. right? Well, we've trained our instincts uh, in systems where we were dealing with scarcity. I mean, for thousands of years, we've been working on the assumption that there's not enough to go around. So you've got to compete really hard to get what's yours. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. And once you're in a system where there is enough to go around, you're still fighting that instinct that you've developed back when there was not enough for everybody. It wasn't a good idea to share. (laughs) On a very small scale, this is why if someone, if there is free pizza, I will eat way more free pizza than I want or need because it's free and there's still part of my brain that's the... the She doesn't want me getting it. Hungry college student who's going like, I also why I will always be at the head of the line and this is true. (laughs) (laughs) My coworkers can attest to it. Like, like... I'm there 10 minutes before the food is being served. <laughs> Jonathan's like a dog that runs to the other dog's bowl first and you have to chase him away. I, I accept that. It's, <laughs> I don't object at all. But yeah, no, it's, it's obviously if we were to make this move, it would not, I don't think it would be a gradual thing. I think this would have to be something where we reach a tipping point, mm-hmm. right? Where we mm-hmm. reach a point where we say, no, the things that we need, we have more than enough of. There is no reason anyone should go wanting for these. There's there's no purpose uh, unless you are just completely divorcing yourself from any kind of compassion or empathy. And I don't think we've gone there. I hope we haven't gone there. And uh, so I think that there could be a tipping point where we say, oh, now it's undeniable. We have this. There's a responsibility at some point to to figure out how to distribute it properly, which would, by necessity, uh, involve a really big economic shakedown because it's completely different from what we do today here in the United States, at least. Well, tying into what we talked about in our last episode about uh, about robots, mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily need replicators and you wouldn't even necessarily need political action. You could have, I think, an organic realization of the post-scarcity economy by a sudden, you know, rapid, maybe over the course of five or 10 years, acceleration in robot productivity when suddenly robots can make everything we need. Yeah. And it totally takes us by surprise. And then what are you going to do? I mean, at, at that point, do the people who own the robots still say, no, no, this is all mine. It, that almost kind of becomes silly. I mean, yeah. I know there are people are greedy, mm-hmm. but at the same time, once we're living in that world, wouldn't people kind of have a, a, a revelation? Wouldn't there be an epiphany? Well, I think I think that's what Star Trek presupposes, yeah. and and I think it's a it's a lovely presupposition. You it, know, it's it's very nice to think that the kinds of problems that we're having due to greed right now are are going to go away. Yeah. Um. And and I do think that it would have to be a, a paradigm shift, culturally speaking. Yeah, I think so, too. And and not only that, but it would be so incredibly disruptive. I mean, we're talking about this and thinking about the the beautiful future where nobody wants for anything, you know, at least at least as far as the basic necessities go. But then you think, well, this world would also eliminate some big institutions that have been around for for centuries, like banks, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you know, you t- when you're talking about an institution that's been around that long, like a, that type of institution, even if you're not talking about a specific, you know, branch or whatever. Yeah, send them all to Ferengi. Yeah, but then again, <laughs> then again, now I don't want to, please feel free to tell me I'm wrong, banker listeners and write in, <laughs> uh-huh, but uh-huh. I don't know if anybody is really like, I love banking so much. I love banking. <laughs> there's, there's Mr. And Banks I would, I, Mary, Mary Poppins. <laughs> I would be banking even if I didn't get paid for it. I kind of don't really think that, I, I don't know, as I said, it's, maybe it's, I'm it's assuming. Diffi- it's difficult to, to put forth that opinion. I mean, being that all, all three of us talking here are, are artists and writers and, and, 
you know, amateur armchair philosophers. Sure. And so it's it's kind of difficult, I think, for us particularly to to consider uh, that level of uh, love of banking. <laughs> hey, if I owned a bank, anyway, so if I owned a bank, I guarantee you I would love it. No, no, no. I, I'm getting to the. <laughs> So the the point I was trying I mean, to make yeah, was yeah, yeah. if we imagine a scenario when society is flush with wealth, like mm-hmm. we we're talking about, there's enough for everybody to have tons of money without doing anything at all. Then even with that benefit, would bankers still want to preserve banking? Right. Wouldn't they rather be uh, writers and podcasters and armchair philosophers I, and see, I, restaurant owners? Well, no, and, I'm not saying that. Well, no, 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 they no, might no, rather, I'm, I'm, sure, they might rather be chefs or they might right, rather play yeah. golf or yeah. they might rather do – I don't know what. I, I think I think that would be – I think there would be a an interim period where there would be a lot of turmoil. Yeah. I mean, oh, I think, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so after that, I think we emerge to the world where everyone's a golfer. But before <laughs> that, golf clubs are being used for other purposes. Oh, uh. so, <laughs> oh I'm man. I'm just saying. I think that I think because because you're talking about, you know, when we say paradigm shift, it, it's those are simple words, but we're talking something yeah. really fundamental here. Something that that is a huge, like a bigger change than anything that's been faced in well at least in our lifetimes if not the human species you could argue that there have been some pretty major ones like uh you know uh, uh the industrial revolution but mm-hmm. still it's it's hard to think of something that would be more disruptive than this particular uh tipping point moment well i'd say the one last question then is one that we also had to deal with in in the previous podcast about robots but um is there a worry that in a post scarcity economy where people aren't forced to work well people will choose not to work but that will also make them miserable i mean we make decisions all the time that are guaranteed to make us less happy just because in the short term it seems like the best thing to do i'm gonna eat these nachos because it seems really great now and then an hour later i'm like wow why did i i wish why did i hadn't I eat done those that nachos? and yeah. and it could be the same thing with with our laziness instinct i i do lazy things where i really wish i'd made better use of that time uh and it kind of makes me sad and then i wonder if i didn't have to work would my entire life turn into one of those moments where, well, I don't have to do anything right now, so I'm not gonna. And then I'm near the, nearing the end of my life and I'm like, wow, what a waste of time. Yeah. You're like, man, that 28 <laughs> years that I spent browsing Facebook really could have been used differently. I think, uh, in my experience, the, the neat thing, and I'm sure it's true for both of you as well, uh, to some, to some level at least, is that the thing that I like to do in my spare time back before I had this job is what I'm doing now for my job. So I'd like to think that in this wonderful future where I no longer need to be paid for anything, I would be doing something akin to this for fun because that's what I was doing before I had the job. So I I, I am one of the incredibly lucky people who is legitimately doing what I love to do Mm -hmm. as my job. So I would imagine that my life would be not much different. I mean, obviously, uh, I would imagine the technology to be better so I could, you know, have a robot edit my podcast for me. Aww. But other than that. Don't put Noel out of work. I, I'm just we saying my you, personal Noel. podcast, not my work podcast, oh, because okay. we've already established there's no work anymore. Okay. There, there is no robot that could make disgusting electronic music like Noel. That's true. <laughs> Beautifully disgusting electronic music. No, it's please. great stuff. Thank you. Let's plug him now. Noel's face is red from all the backhanded compliments we've been giving him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Noel's great. Okay. He just, we, he, just, he just poked out from behind a speaker and kind of glared at us. We should wrap this up, yeah. folks. All right, so this was a ton of fun to look into, right? I mean, oh, yeah. we have to thank George for the email and the suggestion because uh, we're all Star Trek fans here and the thought of going into the economics behind it as as uh, vaguely described as they were was a, a a fun challenge so if you guys have any other suggestions something that you want to hear us talk about whether it's science fiction related or just some sort of topic and you wonder what's that going to be like in the future you should write us and let us know our email address is once again fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. At Twitter and Google+, we are FWThinking. Just search FWThinking and Facebook will pop right up. Let us know what you think, and we'll talk to you again really soon. 
For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.